listening to our New Chapel podcast. We're for people to connect with God and be raised to new life in Christ. Be sure to connect with us at newchapel.com and on social media to stay up to date on everything happening here at New Chapel. My name is Joe Bevelock. We're excited that you're here. Welcome to part three of our series, Family Matters. If you have anything to take notes with, take that out right now. You know, typical New Chapel style, when we go deep and we really deal with heart issues or deep theological truths, we typically like pair it with DeLoreans on stage and Family Matters and Carl Winslow or Ghostbusters or something. And uh, the last two weeks, we've really gone for the heart of things. And today will be no exception. Pastor Gabe George uh, became a great friend to Kaya and I, and honestly, I told him outside of like Kaya, the kids, Pastor Brian and I, I said, you're one of the closest relationships in my life. It's become that important and that vital, and we share a lot of details about what God is doing in our hearts and lives. Really, I didn't even think of it this way until right now, but really modeling what a small group would look like in any other context, and I'm so appreciative of his voice in my life. He has a voice in my life. And the last time that he was here, well, there wasn't a dry eye in the place. I don't know about today, but I think that it will be very impactful and powerful. He's been a part of planting churches. He's been a family pastor and actually wrote and informed much of the way that we do children's ministry back at New Kids through Kids on the Move. He's become a great friend, and I can't wait for him to have more of a voice in our family here at New Chapel. Church, would you stand up on your feet all over the room? Put your hands together, please, for Pastor Gabe George. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, you may be seated. Uh, I love it here. I really do. This is a special place. This is a really special place. Um, I'm sure you're aware of this. You look out at the state of things, and it's evident that an earthquake has kind of shaken humanity. Uh, Our world has been rattled. Morally speaking, the world has been rattled. Politically speaking, socially speaking, and the church has been rattled. There have been issues with the church. There have been issues with the authority in the church here and there. It's certainly not the totality of the church, but it is felt. And what happens when there's an earthquake structures are shaken. And when structures are shaken, people are reluctant to go back into those spaces for fear that the roof will fall down on their heads. This is a special church, and here's why. Because what this church is built on is not shaken, and it's not shaken because it is led well. And this isn't just sort of the standard honoring moment of a guest speaker where I get up and share how much I love your pastors and how great they are, and you just sit there and, you know, I don't know what you do. I, maybe if you're like me, <laughs> you just do what I did. And like, I don't, yeah, that's great. I, I mean, I have my own thing going with the pastors. That's awesome. I, how you feel about them is irrelevant to me, but I will tell you this. You can trust this place. You can trust this structure because like begets like. You can't fake it. You just can't. So if a leader is a particular way, whether he preaches a different culture or not, who he is is what is mass-produced. You get around this church for just a minute, and you can tell this is a, it is a close church. It is a family church. That statement, welcome home. If you're new here, if you're trying this place out, if you're relatively new, if it's your first time here, it's just like maybe that seems a bit presumptuous to you, but I will tell you this. It's not, and here's why. Because the church is commissioned by God in heaven, the creator of all things, to be the rescue team. 
when the world has been shaken. That's New Chapel. This isn't just a church, it's a rescue team. So there are places ordained by heaven to stand strong, even though the narrative in the world is that it's all, you can't trust any of it, that's garbage. It's a lie. It's here or there that that may be true. But the ways of the Lord and the way he ordained it, which is to raise up authority, which really just means responsibility, to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and to lead people where the Lord would have them go. That is the role of the shepherd of the church. And there are some people, it's like, I don't trust you. You know, you're just in this for yourself. I'm like, if you're in this for yourself, you would do anything else, I promise you, because being a pastor of a church and starting a church, you, you, and you know this after you start one, because I've started churches, like afterwards, you're like, I should have done anything else. But I, I can't because I'm compelled. I'm compelled. I'm commissioned. I'm called by God. That is the Bevilacqua family. Or as my Siri, which is a, which is a British woman, um, I say, call Joe Bevilacqua, and she says, call him Joe Bevilacqua. And I say we go with that. <laughs> it's just, it's kind of Cajun, maybe. I don't know what it is, but it's like, you were Italian, and now you're French. That's how I feel. <laughs> <laughs> Calling Joe Bavalacqua. Um, so to the Bavalacquas, I love you. I thank you uh, for, for being faithful to the call. And this is a house you can trust. You can trust. And if you don't believe me, well, then you obviously weren't here the last time I came and delivered one of the best messages ever, and you missed it. You just missed it. But lucky for you, I always deliver, right? I always, it's going to be good. Anyway, I flew in Friday. And um, I got off the plane, and I didn't wear my parka on the plane, which I should have. So I come out of the airport, and it's like, good grief, it's cold. And I didn't, you know, I'm from Tulsa, Oklahoma, so it gets cold, but it hasn't gotten that cold yet. I mean, we'll have days where it's chilly, but like tomorrow, 67 degrees in Tulsa, and it's in the high 50s. And so I walked out, and it's like, my blood's thin. My, my blood's too thin. I don't have the porridge running through my veins that you guys <laughs> So I walk outside, and I'm like, it's chilly. And so your pastor's response to this is, I know you're cold, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to Nuego, and we're going to go walk outside and do the Christmas walk, and we're just going to stay out there. And that's what we're going to do. And I get out there, and the family all comes, and you know the kids are there, and they're having a great time, and Kaya's there. And Kaya does what Kaya has now grown to do, which is just make fun of me. She just makes fun of me. It's just like, it's not, and everyone's just telling me, like, it's not cold. I'm like, I'm freezing. I mean, and everyone kept saying, it's a beautiful night. And I'm like, y'all are insane up here. This is not beautiful. I mean, it's, it's chilly. And I stole a blanket from one of the children, and that helped. Um, but I get made fun of a lot because of the cold. And I'm like, I don't, I don't really, I don't love the cold. Well, I, I like the cold till Christmas, right? Because it just makes sense. And this is so, it's, it's beautiful up there. The Christmas walk, it's like, this is idyllic. Like that little town that you kind of see in the movies. Like this is what, this is kind of what Christmas is supposed to feel like. I mean, we sing songs about white Christmas and the snow and all that. And so being up here in the north in December, it, it, there's a part of it. It's like this feels right until after Christmas. But Christmas, it's just like this is the way it's supposed to be. And I love thinking about the, sort of the idyllic nature of Christmas. And we all do. And we all feel it. We hear the songs. And it, and it resonates with our hearts, and it's just like, this is the time when humanity is supposed to be the best. And, and, and it's a time when family is at its best, at least it's supposed to be. And we see that mirrored in music and movies, and especially Hallmark movies. Raise your hand if you've seen a Hallmark movie. Be bold. Okay. Now listen, some of you didn't raise your hand. Let me just explain to you the premise 
of a Hallmark movie. And this is a spoiler alert. And here's why it's a spoiler alert. Because they're all the same. This is the story of every Hallmark movie. And there are more Hallmark movies than there are all other movies put together. Because they, I swear they film them in a day, and then they just change clothes and film another one. And they just like, we got to hurry. We can pump out 365 of these if we're just really diligent. And so they do. And so this is, the, this is kind of what a Hallmark movie is. There's a woman. She lives in the city, the big city. She isn't from there. She's from a small town. She's got to go back home for Christmas. And she reluctantly goes, right? Because she's just like, I'm done with all that. Like, I sort of like it, but I'm just like, now I'm a powerful businesswoman, but I got to go home, right? Yeah, you get it. And so she goes back home, and it's like, I mean, it's like Santa's workshop, this town that, that she's from. It's like there never was a place in the world that was more Christmassy than this place. And she goes back in, and it's like, I don't know, she just has to, like, all her old clothes are there, and she's got to put all those on, and so she looks like Mrs. Claus. And she's going around, and it's just like, people are like, you've changed. And she's like, well, I, you know, I'm evolving and all this stuff, whatever. And there's just this tension of like, but this is where you're from. <laughs> and then she meets a guy. She always meets a guy. And, and he's like, he's a creative type, and he wears what I call the hot guy shirt. And it's like the, 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 it's like the Henley, I think is what it's called. And it's like, a, it's like long john material, and it's got like the buttons up to here. But, but that's not all he wears, because he has like eight layers. Because they always have like... It's like the Henley shirt with the undershirt with a vest with a flannel and whatever. And it's just like, and there he is, right? And he's really creative. He paints. He's whittling a sleigh currently for the orphans out of one piece of wood, right? And he's like kind of challenging her evolution and calling her back to, you know, just like get over your cold-hearted cynicism. And the end of the movie ends the same way every time, every time. You know, she's like, she comes back around and they kiss and all that. And then it's just like everything is right with the world. That's Christmas. That's apparently, according to Hallmark, that's how, and that's all, most Christmas movies end with like, it's all come back together and there's this unification that we all long for. That's why we love Christmas movies. You don't think about it. It's like they make us feel good, but really it calls to a part of us that was put there by God that's like there's something more than this. And Christmas, it feels like, above all things, Christmas taps into that. The music, I feel like this. I listen to songs. I listen to Nat King Cole, and he's singing Christmas songs, and there's a part of me that, that it's so warm, but there's also a part of it that just I feel a longing. It's like I, I, really it's, I long for this to be true. And that we would get to the end of the movie and it would stay that way, but it just doesn't. And so whenever Pastor Joe asked me to talk about family, I'm going to talk about it from a slightly different angle, but the reality of family is there's really nothing better and more powerful than family because it's a God-ordained institution. However, nothing can hurt quite like family. The wounds of family run deep. They run deep, whether it's significant pain or it's just little things we pick up because with family, we're, we're truly known in that space. And so whenever things are done to us in that space where we're the most vulnerable, the wound we carry usually stays there. And so you got a lot of people at the world, it's like, hey, it's the holidays, it's time to come together. And people talk about how crazy their families are. And when we all get together, you know, sometimes it's good for a little while, but then we got to get out of there because it's challenging and all that stuff. And it's the status quo that family is kind of like, it's really good, but it's also really difficult. But I just want to say this, as followers of Christ, we're meant to buck the status quo. We're, we're, we're called to better. And, and it isn't just to improve on what the world does, it's to do it counterculturally, that we have the, 
the God-given capacity to operate in the kingdom of heaven now. So the longing that we have can be realized here. It isn't heaven yet, but Jesus came and he said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why? Because I am here and Jesus is here. Jesus resides in us. And so how I want to hit the angle of family is not so much that we go in and make peace with everybody. And I mean, it's like, how do we make it like the Hallmark movie? And it's like, well, that's a challenge. And I would never send you on that assignment. So as we enter into the holidays, you need, it's like an airing of grievances. It's actually Festivus for the Seinfeld fans. It's just like, we're going to fix it this Christmas. And it's your job to call out all the nonsense. Not so much to look at everybody else, but to look at yourself. When the angel appeared in the sky on the night Jesus was born, the claim was peace on earth, goodwill towards men. Peace on earth, in my estimation, starts with peace in you. Peace in you. Because if, if you, you can't experience or share what you don't have, so you need to know what it means to live in peace. And Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 9, it says, blessed are the peacemakers. Peace has to be made. It has to be fought for. And so I'm going to talk about how we fight for that, and I'm going to talk about it out of uh, some verses in Matthew 16. I'll read this to you. It says, And Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever wants to follow me, must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? And what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? What Jesus says is there's nothing more priceless to you, nothing more valuable to you than your soul. It's interesting because we don't think about the soul that often. But I want to talk about unburdening the soul. I want to talk about soul care. And I believe that there are some things that are going to be revealed to you during this that God is going to do work in you that needs to be done and that is a great gift to you. And we're here for that. We're here for something that transcends our natural experience. We're here for God to enter our space. We need him to enter our space. And so that is what I believe will happen. Before we get into the rest of the message, though, I want to pray. While I pray, you pray. Your prayer is simple. Jesus says he stands at the door of our hearts and he knocks. That isn't just for your one-time salvation. That is all the time. He's knocking you have to unlock the door and open it. And that's all you need to do is say, here I am, Lord. Speak to me. Speak to me. So as I pray, you pray. Would you join me in doing that, please? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your faithfulness. There is not one person here by accident. You see the hearts and the plights of each person. I don't. But you do. You know exactly how to speak to them. There are going to be things that come out of my mouth, Lord that someone's going to be sitting in this room thinking that was specifically for me. How did he know? I don't know, but you know, and you speak through me. That is my assignment, hopefully to remain clear so that you can speak through me. And you speak through me to people personally. You know exactly what they need to hear, and you know exactly how to make sure what they hear produces fruit. That is what we ask for. Make our hearts good soil this morning so that the seed of your word can produce good fruit. We ask this in Jesus' name and Jesus' nature, by faith. And everyone said, amen. 
when I was 17 years old, uh, I was sitting in the kitchen in my house. My mother was making dinner, and she asked me, what do you want to do with your life? What do you want to be? And, you know, I was a senior in high school, and it's an important question, but I just, I didn't know. I, I had no idea, and a lot of kids don't know, and there's nothing wrong with that. But it's just like, I don't really know. I sat and thought about it for a while, and I told her, eventually, I said, you know what, Mom, if I could do anything or be anything, I'd like to be like Dad. See, my dad's a pastor. My dad started a church in Oklahoma in 1987. He's been a pastor forever, and it sounds kind of like this neat thing, like, wow, what conviction, but really, the root of that request or that statement went much deeper into a much darker place. I was seven, and I was sitting in my house watching TV with my brother, who's two and a half years older than me, and my mom was sitting in the room. And I was sitting at the base of the TV, the, the TV stand thing, and I was turning the channel. Now, and this would have been 1985. We had just gotten a satellite dish, um, and not the kind that you put on your house, the kind that you, you could, you know, talk to aliens with, you know, it's just like, it was as big as the home and it sat next to the home. And it's just like, if you ever saw contact with Jodie Foster, it's like, that was it. Like you could just position it right. And that's, so anyway, what you did is how you turn the channel is you turn this knob. It was kind of like a radio and the frequency would move back and forth. Now, for those of you who don't know what a radio is, we'll talk about that later. But anyway, turn the knob, and so you would find a frequency that the picture would come in. And then whenever you did that, then there was this other, these other two buttons where you could go back and forth within that frequency and find channels, find things that were, you wanted to watch. So I'm sitting there turning the knob, looking for a frequency, and I turn it, and all of a sudden what comes on the TV is just, I just see skin. And my mom yells, my brother yells, like, turn the knob. And I'm just like, you know, as fast as I can, turn the knob. Well, later that night, we went to bed. My mom, my parents went to bed. I went to bed for a minute. And then I got back up. I went downstairs. I turned back on the TV, and I looked for what I had seen earlier, and I found it. I did this several times. I don't know how many times. I don't really have memory of it. It was hardcore pornography, and I, 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 I have memory, but it was, it's limited because my mind couldn't comprehend what I was seeing. I knew it was wrong, but I was curious and whatever else, and I just like I, I, I went back to it. I don't know how many times. What happened to me that day was almost like a fracture that I had a life that people could see. I had everything that was external. It's not like everything about me died that day. But what was produced was this alternate life that sort of lived beneath the surface. And what I began to walk with and live with was guilt and really deeper than that, shame. And so I went through the rest of my childhood, my teenage years, into my 20s, even my 30s, carrying shame. Because there was just a part of me that... No one knew. And whenever I'm 17 and I'm talking to my mom and I say, I want to be like dad, the reason was because dad's close to God. And I don't feel close to God. In fact, most nights I lay my head on my pillow and I ask God to forgive me and I just don't think that he does. And I'm worrying, I'm terrified that I'm going to die and spend eternity in hell. 
And I thought about that constantly. I lived with it. It wasn't that I always had that on my mind, but here's what it did. It produced this thing in me that affected everything. I look back on my teenage years, and it wasn't that I never had a good time and never enjoyed myself, but the the, the, my identity had been affected, and that affected all my relationships. It affected how I engaged my family. It affected, affected how I engaged my friends, girlfriends, my wife, everything. Why I'm talking about the soul today is because the soul, your soul, deeply affects your relationships, and it certainly affects your family. We have wounded people in our family because of the state of our own soul. Other people have wounded us because of the state of their soul. And so I feel like the best way to attack the family leading into Christmas is not to go in and say, we got to fix you, but to go, what is going on in me? Because if we can reconcile what's going on in us, then we can bring the peace of God with us wherever we go. And so I want to talk to you a little bit about how you care for the soul, but I want to explain what the soul is. So we are a body, we are a spirit, and we are a soul. Now, the body we know, it's physical, five senses, don't need to go into that. The spirit and the soul are a little bit more difficult to separate. Your spirit, when you accept Christ, in 2 Corinthians it says that you've been given a new spirit, you're a new creation, you're new. And what God does is he takes a part of himself and he puts it in you. You're new. Your spirit is how you experience God. It's how you receive from God. It's how you receive the love of God. God is a spirit. He speaks to your spirit. Your spirit is a part of you that resonates deeply, but it's like it's in there somewhere else. It's like we know. We come to church. We hear it. There are parts of us. It's not so much that we're moved with emotion, but it's like it's just like a tuning fork in us. It's our spirit. Your soul is your mind and your will and your emotions. Now, the best way that I can explain and describe what the soul is, is to show you this dryer filter. Now, this is not my dryer filter, which means that touching this for me is gross. (laughs) But I am very much acquainted with the dryer filter because I do the laundry at my house. I started doing that a long time ago. And I don't tell you that to brag, but mainly just to tell you that I am an incredible husband. I do the laundry, I dry the laundry, I fold the laundry, I put the laundry away. I've been doing this for a really long time. Amen. Let's just pray there. We're done. Anyway, I learned early in the process that the dryer has a dryer filter. And if you do not remove the lint from this filter, your clothes will not get dry. So what happens if you leave this in there for a long time is the lint will build up And side note, there is maybe nothing on the earth more satisfying than pulling out the dryer filter, and when you go to pull it, and it all comes off in one piece, and it's like, then you can use that as a workout towel, right? You don't even, it's like, store that away, right? But if you don't remove the lint, then the clothes don't get dry, and here's why. Obviously, hot air comes in, it passes through this filter to get to the clothes, The hot air is God to your spirit. But our soul filters what we receive from God. So what happens is why we struggle in our lives, 
even after we claim Christ, believe in Christ, and we have this new spirit, is not that you're not saved. God has put a spirit in you, but then the Lord has a process of renewing your soul and caring for your soul. So he gives you a new spirit, but he doesn't heal your soul like he would heal a sick body. No one came to Christ and said, heal my mind, my will and emotions. And the Lord said, you're healed. And then they just thought like Jesus and acted like Jesus forevermore. The Lord has a process, which I'll get into. But why we still struggle is because the good things of God have been given to us, but it passes through our soul. And when we're saved, we have a new spirit, but our soul is the same. It doesn't change. We have to work to change it, work to make it look like Christ wants it to look. So what happens is we filter God through our soul. Soul care is critical for you. It's massive. Jesus says, what can a person exchange for their soul? The reason is because how the good things of God are manifested in your life has everything to do with your soul. So if you don't do anything with that, then you live a very low-level life as it pertains to experiencing the promises of God, living in the truth of God. It doesn't mean that God's love for you has diminished. It just means that it's not getting through because it's just stuck in the filter. You've got like, like a beach towel on there if it hasn't been dealt with. And so how do you care for the soul? A man came up to Christ. He recognized that Jesus was different. And he said, what's the most important commandment? This is Mark 12. What's the most important commandment? What do I do? And he, Jesus responds, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Love the Lord your God with all your spirit, with all your mind, will, and emotions, and with your strength physically. That's how you do it. How then do we love God with our soul? Because we, 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 we spend time receiving truth. You know, it's like, I know, I know I need to learn. I need to apply myself to hearing the word of God and all of that. But, but how, do we, how do we let this apply to the state of our soul? There are three things that I want to talk to you about quickly. And they're practical, but they're profound. The first one is silence and solitude. Silence and solitude. We don't like silence. We don't like being still. We've become increasingly worse at doing this just with technology and the bombardment that is in the, just the distraction of constant. Like we just, we, whenever I was a kid, we'd go on family vacations. And we, I remember one, we drove forever. I don't know where, where we went. I think it, we, in Oklahoma, I think we drove to Yosemite National Park or whatever. And it was three of us kids in the backseat of a Jeep Cherokee. Not the Grand, just the one, just the Cherokee. The ungrand Cherokee, which is just smaller. And so it's like, we're going on a 400-hour road trip, kids. It's like, all right, well, I'll bring my stuff. Well, you could only bring a little bit. There wasn't a lot of room. And so what do you bring? You bring like a coloring book and a pillow. <laughs> and that's it. And you're like, you're sitting there, and you're like, this is great. And then you, you color for a little bit, and you draw for a little bit. And, and, you know, six minutes later, you realize that this is on board with that. And then you put that down, and you're like, now what? And you... You know, the next best thing is to punch your sister. And so you start doing that. And then you get in trouble. My dad, no music. You didn't listen to music in the car. My parents, no music. So my parents would talk and we would listen to that. So it was like a different kind of NPR radio in those days. Like, this is fascinating. 
So we would fight and get in trouble, right? And then it was, it was always like, you look out that window, you look out that window. That was the iPhone, right? Just like Nebraska, like skip, <laughs> you know, <laughs> swipe. How do we get rid of this? There was nothing else to do but look out the window. Well, now, obviously, we're bombarded with options. Well, the challenge with that is that we're not real great at being quiet. Your soul speaks. Your soul has a language. But if you're never quiet enough to listen to it, the loudness in your world will drown out the voice of your soul. So my dad has a hunting ranch with white-tailed deer on I don't hunt. But I, like, I love the place. I go out there. And I go out there, and I'll get on a buggy, and I'll drive around, especially when the weather's good. And I'll ride around out there, and I'll just sit and be still. And there's something about being out in nature and being quiet. And so I go out there, and I sit, and I'm quiet. And there was one particular time I was out there. I was by a body of water, and this white-tailed deer walks up not far from me, this buck, big buck. He walks out, and he's doesn't either, either he, he, well, he doesn't see me, because if he saw me, he would never come out. But I'm just being still for a while. He comes out and starts drinking from the water. And I kind of wanted to like telepathically tell him, like, you don't need to be afraid of me. I won't hurt you. But if you see any other man on this property, run. <laughs> run for your life. Just don't look back, because they want to kill you, and they want to hang your head on the wall for whatever reason, right? We don't know, but they want to do it. <laughs> There are people with murder in their heart like Bevelacroix and me. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> that's your soul. You got to be still. You got to practice being still. And what happens when you're still, intentionally still, your soul will begin to speak. And I'm not saying the first time you do it, you're just like, oh, this amazing revelation. It is a practice of life. And it doesn't mean that you have to go off for an hour and be still every day. But if you just started, and I just challenge, this is my challenge to you to do it, five minutes. Just be still. Put your phone away. Sit quietly where you're not going to be distracted. Be quiet for five minutes and say this to God. Lord, reveal to me what's going on in me. Your soul will begin to speak to you, talk to you. And here's the other thing that happens. When you sit still, and this is how I always do it, I'm like, Lord, reveal this to me, but also, Lord, work on me, my behalf. Work on my behalf. Because I don't always know what's going on in there. But he does. It says this in Romans 8, 26, 27. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Now, I've heard this before and thought, well, that's just speaking of a prayer language. But really, it says that the Spirit of God is in you, knows you, prays for you to the Father the things that you need. Imagine that you have a, a divine force in you that is reading your mail. We don't always know what we need. We think we need this, but really we go that way for a little bit. And we realize, oh, that wasn't it. There's deeper layers, layers, layer upon layer upon layer. The Spirit of God is at the core of who you are praying on your behalf to the Father, prayers that will always be answered. What a thing. We don't think about that. And so we sit in there and we think, I got to pray. I don't know what to pray. And it's like, well, the Spirit of God knows what to pray. 
But giving him that space, and not to say that he'll only do it when you sit still, but you just sit still and say, bring this to the surface, Holy Spirit, but also pray on my behalf. Help me see what's going on in my soul. And we don't know because we are just busy and we collect the lint of life every time we go out. And it's not just the world out there. It's our mind telling us things, saying things, things from our past. They just are constantly there. And we have to be still enough to remove the lint. Silence and solitude, that's the first thing. The second thing is this, confession and counsel. Confession and counsel. James 5.16 says this. Confess your sins one to another that you may be healed. Now, the scripture says that if we confess our sins to God, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from unrighteousness. Now, I just want to say this real quick. It says that God is faithful to forgive you, which is great news. But it also says that God is just in forgiving you, meaning it is justice for God to forgive you. God is a God of justice. Now, a lot of us deal with the thought and feeling that we are not forgiven. I know because I lived that way for a really long time. But the scripture says that it, it would, if God is just in forgiving you, that means if he doesn't forgive you, it is unjust. Think about that. Why is it unjust? Because Christ paid the penalty for sin. So he went in, and there was a bill due for humanity. Now, it is a gift that has to be received. But he went in, and he paid the bill on the cross. It is finished. So then for God to require you to pay the bill again is unjust. So a lot of us that live with that thing of like, I don't know if I'm forgiven, put it to bed. You are forgiven When you confess your sin to the Lord, he forgives you. But James says, confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. Healing comes in community. That's why the body of Christ, which is us as individuals coming together, the body of Christ is critical. See, you were not made to figure it out on your own. But the soul is something that we like. We guard like a lot of men. We don't talk about that stuff. I don't talk about my thoughts. I don't talk about my feelings. Like it's some sort of weakness, right? Well, in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 1, God creates, cre- he creates everything. After he creates everything, he says, it is good what I've created. It is good what I've created. This is good. He creates Adam, and he says, it is not good that he's alone. Now, it is the only thing in the entirety of the scripture that God says is not good and it has nothing to do with sin. Sin has not entered into humanity yet, which means that God created you in perfection. He created Adam in perfection in the garden, and part of that perfection is to need community. Not just, I have it, but to need it. You require, so the thought that it is weakness for me to have to lean on people and I should be able to handle this. And as men, we hear it from a young age. It's like, we got to show strength. We got to show strength. I was getting my hair cut and the lady that was cutting my hair was telling me about being at a football game there and her, her, her son's a first grader and he's playing football. And one of the kids on her son's team gets pancaked by this offensive lineman, and the kid's just like laying there dead, you know, on the field. He's just like not moving. There's this huge helmet out there, huge pads, tiny legs, and he's just like, he's not moving. 
The coaches go out there to tend to this little guy who's out there. He's like six years old, and they're, they're, they're helping him. And while they're helping him, this kid's dad stands up in the, in, in the stands there and just keeps yelling on repeat, show no weakness again and again and again. It is a narrative that is put on us. You're weak if you show weakness. If you're hurt, if you're struggling, it's because you're weak and you got to be able to figure that out. And I would say that is not a sign of maturity. It is a sign of immaturity. Because our perfection says, I need people. So for us to confess, and look, this isn't just that you would go in and confess your sin. Is that part of it? Yeah. This is why we avoid it, because no one wants to go in and say, I struggle and I've sinned. Why? Because it damages our self-image. In our estimation, it weakens us. And let me just tell you this. You are never meant to build your life on your self-image completely opposite of culture, you are made in the image of who? Of who? Not you, him. Which means that the destruction of your self-image is not something to resist. It's actually something to, to, to move towards. Like, that is the goal. Less of me, Lord, more of you. That's why Jesus says, deny yourself, pick up your cross. So it's just like, Coming to the end of yourself is a good thing. And so we get in there, I was like, I can't tell him, I can't tell him I struggle, I can't, I can't do that because I have to maintain my strength. As you walk around and your filter is so clogged because you've been going years and years and years, and the great fear is everything will unravel. And I'll say this, does it mean that there are consequences to our actions? Yes. But is that worse than your current state? No. And the lie is, it would be worse would be worse. Try to maintain, try to maintain, try to maintain. And let me just tell you this, that voice in your head telling you, don't tell anyone, hates you, wants you to stay stuck, is all about your demise. So why would you listen to it? We need community. And it isn't just like I said, it's not just confession of your sin. It could be confession of someone else's sin to you. There's another side to this coin. And there are those that we, we have experienced wound. People have said things to us. People have done things to us. This is, the statistics of abuse are staggering. And the whisper there is the same thing. It wasn't your fault, but yet you feel shame for what was done to you. Still a lie. Still out for your demise, trying to keep you down. And so everything that God speaks to your heart gets filtered through that shame barrier. And then what comes out is greatly limited. This is not hard news. This is liberty, confession, and community. This is the great gift of God to you. And there's not a one of us that's exempt. No one. I was at my house the other day, and apparently I was in a funk. (laughs) I know that because my wife told me. Now, (laughs) I didn't feel like I was in a funk, but that's what wives are for. You know, they just, they help you navigate your soul. So my wife, Summer, she asked me, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, what are you talking about? And she's like, something's bothering you. And I'm like, no, I'm fine. She's like, you're not fine. And I'm just like, I'm fine. You're not fine. And I'm like, well, now I'm not fine. You know. (laughs) But I've learned two things. One, she's always right and it's best to agree. Second is this, that she loves me, knows me, and knows when something's not right. So I told her, I said, well, hang on a second. And I just sat down, and I was still for a minute. 
Silence and solitude. Not like, let me go off into a closet somewhere. We just sat down. I was just still. I was quiet. I was like, what's wrong? I thought about it for about 30 seconds. And I said, you know what? You're right. I feel stress. I feel financial burden. And it's, it's affecting how I'm acting. And I apologize for that. And I, the beauty of speaking it is then it loses its power. So then I identify it. When I identify it, well, I'll say this. It doesn't just lose its power because you speak it out. But what happens when I identify is like I feel financial stress. And so to her, I said, the scripture says that the Lord provides all my need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Then I take that thought that it has surfaced, and then I judge it. And then it loses its power. But that comes in community. You need someone to look at you and say, what's wrong? And some of you... You hate this. You don't want your wife to come in and tell you. Man, it's like they're coming and going, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, woman, well, you know, whatever. And it's just like, she was sent by God to help you. I feel your pain, bro. I do. I'm so sorry for saying it. I really am. I feel like that I've betrayed you. But here's the deal. It's true. It doesn't make her always correct. That we need to talk about, right? Like we, not, never mind. That's not what we're going to talk about in New Chapel. Anyway, it doesn't make it always correct, but, it, but what it does do is you've got to trust the fact that God has put her there, and she sees things that, that maybe you don't even realize are there. But she's sent there to help you, to unburden you, not to be a burden, but to unburden you. It's all in your perspective. If you just look at it correctly, you'll begin to live in the liberty of it. Confession and community. The last thing is this. Profession and celebration. Profession and celebration. To profess means to speak. Joshua 1.8 says, the Lord appears to Joshua. Here, I'll read it. He appears to Joshua. Moses has passed. And Joshua apparently is dealing with the angst of leading the children of Israel into the promised land. And the Lord speaks to Joshua, and many times before this, he says, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. He just keeps telling him, don't fear, I'm with you, I'm with you, I'm with you. And this is what he says, keep this book of the law always on your lips. Keep it on your mouth. Meditate it day and night so that you'll be careful to do everything written in it. He doesn't say ponder it necessarily, he says speak it, keep it on your mouth. You keep it on your mouth and you think about it. You keep it on your mouth and you think about it. Your mouth is the rudder to the ship that is your soul your mind, will, and emotions. When you speak, it changes trajectory. The Bible says life and death are in the power of the tongue. There are a lot of us that have been professing the narrative that's been going on in our minds since forever. It's our voice, sounds like us, makes a lot of good points. So we just regurgitate what we think on all the time. We hear it, we say it. We hear it, we say it. We live kind of in this place where what we confess or profess about ourselves is not what Jesus would say about you. But if you're ever going to change your life, if you're ever going to allow the Spirit of God to move to you and through you freely, where you bear much fruit, where you walk in the fruit of the Spirit peace and joy and kindness and goodness and gentleness and meekness, self-control. When you walk in that, it is because you have adopted what Jesus says about you over the way you think about yourself or the way you have spoken about yourself, even over 
your own reality as you would see it. I didn't say this in the first service. I'll tell you this. It's, it's a little bit different in some ways. Years ago, I was planning a church in Los Angeles, and I was at the beginning of this process. And I was just feeling overwhelmed by it all. And I asked Summer and the kids, I have two kids, I asked them, like, hey, Summer, can you take the kids out of the house? I need to, like, I need time with God. And it, and it was really like just desperation. I am, I am overwhelmed in my soul, and I need to, I something, I need something. So she left, and I turned on some worship music, and I remember it vividly, I will never forget. I was standing there in my living room in San Marino, California, and I remember lifting my hands and out of willful choice, I just said, Lord, I worship you. I thank you. And, and, and it was a conscious decision in my mind. I, I envisioned myself being with my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I just said, Lord, I, will, I worship you now like I will worship you there. And I remember just closing my hands like this as if I were grabbing the hands of the person to my right and left in heaven. And when I did that, I had this moment with God. It wasn't a vision that I could see with my eyes. I didn't fall into a trance. And I don't talk about this because whenever people say they had an encounter with God like that, it's just like, yeah, I don't know if that's true. And, I, you know, to be honest with you, I don't really care if you believe me or not because it was <laughs> unbelievably strong. I see myself in my heart. I could see I'm in this sea of humanity, just like as far as I could see. I knew it was heaven. But it wasn't descript. I, I, I wasn't like, and I saw all these mountains, and it was beautiful. It was just, I saw the backs of people. And after a second of worshiping there, and I just was overcome as I'm sitting there, like I'm shaking, and it just like I was feeling it so strong, like nothing ever before or since. People started to step out of the way, and Christ walked up and stood there. Now, I was... My eyes are closed, but in my heart, I'm looking straight ahead, but it would be like me looking at Pastor Joe out of the peripheral of my vision. I couldn't tell you, like, this is what he looks like. You know, I, I don't know. But he stood there. And one of the things that tells me that this was a real encounter is the peace. He's the Prince of Peace, and it's a peace that you can't fabricate. It's just, I'm in here in this desperate place doing a really crazy thing, and Jesus shows, and it's just a peace, just it all melts away, and he just stands there. And the most critical thing that was spoken to me, although he never opened his mouth, I fell to my face on my carpet. I put my hands where his feet would be, and I started to say, forgive me. I started to say, forgive me, because I lived with this burden since I was a boy. Something's wrong. Something's off. Something's broken. And my default mode was to feel inadequate. No one would have known, but I knew. I start to say to him, forgive me. I can't get the syllables out. I say, forgive, and he says, Get up. You read through the Gospels, there are a lot of times where you see our Lord say, get up, exclamation point, get up. I shot up like a soldier. I am bawling. I am shaking. My eyes are closed, and he says, now go. 
And I also started to utter to him in my heart, you have to help me. And I couldn't get that out. He wouldn't let me. I was like, you have to help. And he goes, I've already given you everything you need. Church, you have been given everything you need. Everything. The Spirit of God Almighty resides in you. What a thing. Heaven lives in your heart. It is filtered by the part of you that must be broken. That self-assurance, that self-reliance, the thing the world constantly tells you to be a boss, get out there and handle it, is bullcrap. Because it keeps you from him. And whenever you do that, you build your soul up to be strong. You're just like, I got to do better. I got to be stronger. But you are weak because you're human. You're frail because you're human. And there are things that you're not going to overcome because you're human. And he didn't design you to overcome them without him. And so he's saying to you, get up, meaning what? I have given you what you need. There is nothing more to be done in heaven or on earth but the spirit of God that resides in your heart. It can't be grown. It is given, but it is filtered by the part of you that has to come to the cross. That's why Jesus said, deny yourself. Deny yourself. And that is not just, I had to do all the things I don't want to do. No, it's deny the thing that you hate. Deny the liar in your head that tells you that you're less than. That voice that says that you're not enough and you can't do it and you'll never overcome this and you're always this and the thing your dad said about you is true and blah, blah, blah. And you've adopted it now to be your own voice and it's just part of your identity. Your identity will be changed when you change your thinking and you adopt his thinking. Now, here's how that works. If you've been in the church, you know this. But a lot of us, it's as if we're sitting around waiting for God to heal our mind. He won't. He won't take your iniquity from you. We want him to fix us. I can't tell you how many times I'm like, God, take the sin. Take it, take it, take it. And he's like, get up. I've given you everything you need. Meaning what? You are forgiven. Now act like it, which is what? I have to change my mind. Because God won't circumvent his own process. The scripture says, don't be conformed to the pattern of the world. Be changed. How? Renew your mind. How do you do that? That book. Well, I didn't actually bring it. It's in the other room. I preach without the Bible. It's fine. Read the word. Whenever the thing comes to your mind that says that you are less than what God says, and you got to know what God says about you. If you know that, then you can bring that to the surface and go, I feel this. I don't feel forgiven, but the word says that I am. That I am the righteousness of God in Christ. If you will combat that little by little, you will become like him. You will mirror him. And so whenever something happens in the devil, his whole job is to get you into shame. Sin that will then produce shame that will make you hide. It's not the sin. The sin's been dealt with on the cross. But Adam and Eve hid in the garden. They went and hid from God. That's what he wants you to do. He wants you to hide. But what we do is we combat that shame. And so if it's like, I am nothing, the devil wants to tell you what you're not. And then as you become more like Christ, you go, you know what? That's a really good point. And I am absolutely nothing apart from him. So it doesn't wound you. It doesn't break you down when it's like, I let myself down. Of course I did because I'm not Jesus. But you know what? I keep going. And what he says about me is true. This is how we become the church. I don't know why I came to the floor. And I'm going to go back up. 
This is what the church is for. I love this church, and here's one of the reasons why. At the end of every service, you're going to hear, now as you go, preach. We don't preach because we can't share what we haven't experienced. We have to take care of our soul. This is what the world calls, its version of it is your mental health. Nothing wrong with mental health when it's attached to God. But that's just Romans. That's just, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. But they don't tell you that. It's just like, you got to care about your mental health. It's like, well, if you're caring about your mental health apart from God, you're going to end up in a cul-de-sac. Not much there. You'll have good days and the like, I did it. And then you'll, you'll get dropped again. We have to care for our souls so that God can come through us, change our lives, give us peace, satisfaction, fulfillment. And then we go to other people and we say, let me tell you about the one who saved me. That's the church. That's our call. Would you bow your heads, please? If you're in the room and your heart is pulled and you don't have a relationship with God, you are not where you need to be and you know it. That is not shameful. It is shameful to walk out in self-reliance. But the timidity of accepting an invitation at the end of the service is, what if I put myself out there and nothing changes? What if I say, hey, here I am. One, it's a hit on my self-image. Because I think maybe people look at me and think I should be better than I am. But I'm not, and I don't want to admit that. But yet I will go home tonight, and I will cry as I go to sleep because I feel the gap. To walk out of here in that state is wrong for you. You don't need it. Don't listen to the lie. You feel the pull on your heart? That's God Almighty. The creator of everything is knocking on the door saying, come, come, get up, come with me, come on. So if you're in the room and you say, I need to make a change today, I acknowledge it. I'm willing to do something about it. I feel the Lord pulling my heart and I'm going to do something about it. On the count of three, you lift your hand. One, two, three. Any hands? I see your hand. Thank you. You can put it right back down. Here's the thing. It's not easy to lift your hand. It's not. It requires boldness to do it. It's a difficult thing. I'm so proud of you for acknowledging it. And what you're doing, just so you know, when you lift your hands, you're saying, here I am, Lord. It's just a physical thing. Jesus told his disciples, come, follow me. It's you saying, I'm willing, I'm willing, I'm willing. And what you're saying to the Lord is, take it from here. Take it from here, Lord. Give me grace. Strengthen me to do what I cannot. But here I am. I surrender. We're going to pray a prayer. I'm going to ask you, everybody, if you're comfortable with this, to repeat this prayer. Say it after me. Say, dear Heavenly Father, Thank you for finding me here. I was a sinner. I was lost, but you found me. You sent your son, Jesus, to live for me, to die on a cross for me, to pay for my sin once and for all, to resurrect me, to give me a new spirit. I receive it. Thank you, Jesus, for being my Lord and my Savior. Strengthen me from the inside out as I walk towards you. Almighty God, I thank you for every person in this room. You're in this space. For two or more gathered, you're here, but you're moving. I sense it. You're moving. You're powerful. You know exactly what we need. And I thank you for honoring your word showing up 
because you love us. Your word does not return empty to you. Your word has been proclaimed in this space and we receive it by faith. We don't have to know how it's all gonna work out, but we know that you're here and that you're walking it out with us. May the seed of your word go down into good soil. That seed is hotly contested, Lord. We know that. But I pray that it find a good place beneath the surface, that the sun doesn't scorch it, that the birds don't take it, that the weed doesn't choke it out, but that it grow and produce much fruit to your glory. In Jesus' mighty name I pray, and everyone said, amen. Now let's do this, church, because it's why we're here. People raise their hands. That's a big deal. We get used to it, but it's a big deal. So what we're going to do is we're going to thank God for his love to those around us because we know he's done this for us. So let's celebrate for just a minute. I don't think I have to tell you what just happened in the room. We needed that. Uh, Pastor Gabe, thank you so much. Can we just honor him, put our hands together and say thank you for that word. Thank you for being willing to trust us with that vision. I hope that you enjoyed today. How many of y'all think we ought to have Pastor Gabe George back in the house soon? I think so. I think since he likes the weather so much, we ought to do it in the winter, in February, or maybe sooner. Who knows? But we so appreciate uh, uh, all of you. And, and listen, this is a live church. Make sure that you're engaging with groups and sign up for these outreaches uh, next week. Everybody said next week? You need to be here. And, and if you don't plan on giving in the Kingdom Legacy offering, here's the permission I give you. When the bucket goes by, just kind of like claw at the bucket and act like you put something in if that's going to help you to come. Because this is your church. And I want you to hear the vision, the great vision of God for 2023. You don't want to miss that. And then on toward Christmas time. It's going to be amazing. So listen, let me pray for you before we dismiss. Kai, why don't you come up here? Let's pray for the people. Give it up for my beautiful bride, everybody. We love you. We walk our house and pray for you. We think about you. We talk about you. We have our own NPR together about you and and and, and we're for you. And so uh, again, if you need have anything in your heart, uh, don't leave this place with a need in your spirit, soul, or body. We have people that would love to agree with you on God's word. Let me pray for you. The Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine on you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. And as you go. We hope that you were encouraged and brought closer to God during this message. You can listen to any of our past messages and series either on this podcast or on newchapel.com slash watch. And be sure to connect with us on Facebook or Instagram to stay up to date on everything happening here at New Chapel. 